0: Well, if you want to find your Bibles, we are going to start the book of Ephesians. So if you want to turn there, I tell you, I cannot wait to dive into this book. I've been studying it uh, for months now in preparation for our time to walk through this. One One of the features of Fellowship Bible Church is that we actually take a book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse. It's called expository preaching, where you're explaining the meaning of the text, what it says, what it means, and how does it apply to our lives. And that's what we're going to do with the book of Ephesians. And I want to start off by telling you in 1959, uh, you'll recognize this guy. Uh, he became the coach of the Green Bay Packers that year. His name is Vince Lombardi. What you probably don't know is that the Green Bay Packers were like the ultra losing team. In fact, the year Uh, before that Vince Lombardi took over. Of the 12 games the Packers played, they won two of them, okay? They were terrible. Vince Lombardi took over. Uh, Well, not much changed. Actually, the first five games, they lost. And he was beginning to wonder if there was anything that could be done to bring about a change to this total losing team. And so he brought the whole team together with the intention of bringing them back to the basics, and this is what he did, and this, is, this has been just kind of part of football lore now forever, and he said this, holding a football, he said, gentlemen, this is a football, and uh, Max McGee, like this total cut-up player, out in the back, in the back he goes, uh, uh, coach, could you slow it down, you're going too fast for us, you know what I'm saying, and Marty laughed for a little bit. And then he brought all their attention back to what he was about to say, that men, this is a football, and it doesn't matter how brilliant and genius the playbook is, if you don't know how to block, tackle, run, catch, and pass, nothing is going to change. He brought them back to the basics, a club that had completely lost its way. And I tell you this because that has a parallel to what is happening in the church, the universal Christian church at this present time. We are in an identity crisis. what, What is needed, absolutely needed in this time, this generation, is the revival of what is the true church. Because we are living in a situation where we don't know as many self-professed Christians, who we really are, what we stand for, why we're here, where we're really going, and what God has called us to do in this generation. We've we just kind of lost our way. And so what has happened is, there's kind of like this whole neo-Christian movement. And what it is, is that we're going to take the parts of Christianity that we like, we're going to pick and choose. It is going to be very much a cafeteria-style kind of Christianity. We're going to take things that were maybe familiar, and we're going to put a whole new groove to them, okay? And it's, and it's changing. We're going to do it under the banner of Christianity, but it's going to be something that we're going to invent. And so much of church has become like a business. And what's happened is we have become infatuated with designer Christianity. We are uh, and we're actually living in a country that is in a moral tailspin. We really ha- can't decide what is truth. We can't discern between fact and fantasy and falsehood. We really don't understand the difference between truth and error. And some people say, well, you can't even make those kind of distinguishing uh, uh, marks at this present time. And not only is that what's happening in our country, where we just see ourselves just, it seems like almost every week, it's like we're, we're exploring new ways of depravity. I want you to know, the church isn't leaving their impression on the world or our culture. The culture is leaving its impression on the church. And we are living in a time where there is like, just even read the news, all sorts of sexual abuse that is taking place in churches, Other churches are celebrating sexual depravity. We have come to a place where we cannot discern God's truth from false teaching. Because, frankly, this book called the Bible, this is so optional. Very few people are actually in it. Fewer pulpits are even trying to teach it. They'll they'll throw in some Bible verses, but most people have become biblically illiterate. And so, whoever's just up front, whatever they say, that is what goes. And that is what is believed. And furthermore... We've got a preoccupation with, like, materialism. It's all about self. I've been, like, like just even listening to, like, Christian music on the radio. And, like, so much of it is just about me, 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 not about God. And then when you couple all of this with the currents of contemporary culture, basically leading the way, not only in the world in which we live, but even in the churches that really are aspiring, we want to be recognized as a part of this culture. We we actually share a lot of the same values we have ha- coming through a pandemic that has had a major reset in the church. And not oftentimes in a in a favorable way. There are now a significant percentage of self-identified Christians that no longer think that you even have to be engaged or part of a local church. It is deemed as optional, and many of these folks have just opted out altogether. It's just not necessary. I've just got my personal relationship with Jesus. I don't have to be involved with anybody else. It doesn't matter. I'll do church my way when I want it, and I don't frankly need to be connected with a lot of Christians. And what has happened is we are in a situation where we have lost our way. What is needed is to actually get back to the basics. What is vibrant, true church? That is what the book of Ephesians is all about. It is the story of God in the lives of his people. This book has revolutionized the, church, the early church, presenting some of the deepest theology, and at the same time, some of the most practical application of how to live out the Christian life. When I oftentimes when I have the opportunity of seeing someone come to Christ or I meet a brand new believer and they're like I don't even know what to read I have them read this book and the book of Ephesians and just read it over and over let it sink in because if you want to know the greatness of God and who he is what he's called us to how to live this is your book so what do Christians need to become all that God desires Friends, if you are a genuine Christian, this is exactly what we need. This is our text. This is why we're going to give ourselves to this book. And I'm going to encourage you to read it repeatedly. Get to know these truths, why they are so familiar. And you will find this. In Christ, God gives us all that we need to become all that he desires. In Christ God gives us all that we need to become all that he desires. In fact, we find that in the very first two verses in the introduction. So often when you come to like an introduction of like a letter, you're just going to gloss through it like, well, I just got to get down to the stuff that's going to be really meaty and meaningful. I want you to know, even in these opening two verses, you're going to find that God in Christ has given us all that we need to become all that he desires. So let's take a look. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Notice what, that God has given us in Christ the foundation of truth. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So here we have, this is just a standard form of how a personal letter was written uh, in the Greco-Roman world, okay? But what Paul has done is he's infused it with all this amazing truth. In fact, it sets the tone for the entire book. And so, this letter that he writes, he writes from prison. It's referred to as, the, uh, as a prison epistle. The others are Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. It's written between like 60 to 62 A.D. It was written at the, uh, after his third missionary journey. He was incarcerated and he wrote letters to churches, and in Philemon's case, to an individual. And now, notice what it says. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is making it very clear, I'm not some sort of self-appointed apostle. I am not like, well, the group gathered around, and they decided that I'm the smartest guy, or I've got the best ideas, or I, I, I seem to have a very likable personality. They named me apostle? no he made it crystal clear that this is all the work of God. I am an apostle by the will of God. Now, just a little background on Paul. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Uh, whether Even if you're a person here, like you ne- have no exposure to Christianity, you've likely heard of the apostle Paul. But let me give you some background on him. Uh, he actually, uh, he had two names, Saul. His Roman name is Paul. He was a uh, Grew up in a very devout Jewish family. He happened to come from a family in which those fa- this family were actually citizens in the Roman Empire. He grew up in Tarsus, and his life followed everything according to the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was well trained in the law, but he showed himself to be brilliant. When it came time for him to really be educated, and this is how it worked among the Jews, you attached yourself to a rabbi. And these rabbis, many of them traveled, but some of them, some of the most esteemed ones, actually set up camp in Jerusalem. The Saul, or you may know him as Paul, actually then, when it came time for his education, made the over 400-mile trek from Tarsus to the north all the way to Jerusalem to study under one of the most elite rabbis of the time, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. He was going to become like a leader in the sect of the Pharisees. He was brilliant, he had leadership skills, and I want you to know he took it all in. He fed upon legalism. In fact, he writes about it in different letters, like the Philippians, for instance, of how perfectly he tried to follow the law of God. And as such, as one who was so steeped in the traditions of the Jews, when this sect called Christianity and these people that were now following Jesus as the Messiah arose... He joined the hatred the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders had toward Christ and any who would follow him, and he became a persecutor of the church, those who followed Jesus. And you'll read about it, and you're probably familiar with the story uh, in Acts, where he is actually sent to a city called Damascus. And while he's making his way to this ancient city of Damascus for the sole purpose of persecuting, incarcerating, and at sometimes even overseeing the death of christians god confronts him in a radical way jesus appears to him confronts him and and actually for a short period of time even blinds him because he is so so steeped in his pride and that he's got it right and that man I'm serving god by persecuting christians to the death that god radically confronts him And Jesus appears to him, and this man becomes completely changed in this encounter from a Christ-hater to one who loves him and trusts him. And Jesus tells him, you are going to be used of me. And when you look at the history of Christianity, but even world history, the influence in what God did with this one man, when you consider his missionary travels, the churches that were established, and how God used him for the writing of the New Testament, a good chunk of it, I tell you, it is absolutely remarkable. And so he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, the word apostle means sent one, okay? And in a general sense, that is how it is used, and you'll find that Like even like in the book of Romans, there are people that were sent ones, and that is the Greek word apostolos. They are sent. But there was the official designation, like you could refer to it as the capital A apostle. These are those who had personally seen the risen Christ and had been divinely commissioned by him to lay out the foundation of doctrine. That is how Paul is referring to himself, I believe, here. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus, not just many who are sent, but one who is officially sent, one who has seen the resurrected Christ, and one who is being used by God to lay the foundation of doctrine for the church. In fact, we're going to find, as we go through the book of Ephesians, Paul writes exactly that. What what is it that apostles were used to do? Take a look. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 13, it says this, and and he says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for what purpose? Why did, why did God do this? Why having apostles? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. You see that? God is going to use his apostles to bring his word so that the saints will be equipped to do what? What? to do the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all, do you see that? We all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is why God gave apostles to lay the foundation of truth, to have the scripture written so that the saints will be equipped so that they can do the work of the service brought up to the unity of the faith so that they will be fully mature. That is God's divine design. And you're like, where did that all even get started? Remember what Jesus prayed right before he goes to the cross. John 17, 17. It's It's a verse worth memorizing. Jesus prayed this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is praying, My people, I want them set apart with the truth. Where is that truth to be found? Your word is truth. That is why the Holy Spirit was used by God to take human lives, in this case the apostles, and to have them write out the word of God we refer to it as the new testament and so we find that the preaching and the teaching and the study of God's word is always at the heart of vibrant vital christianity i mean even from the very earliest days remember that in acts chapter 2 verse 42 What did the early church devote themselves to? There are four things. Do you know the very first thing that was listed? They devoted themselves to the, anybody know? The apostles' teaching. They gave themselves to the study of the word. You see, our growth in faith comes from knowing and living out the truth of God's word. And that's what we find here. God has given us the foundation of truth That's why Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. This isn't me doing this. This is the will of God. And so, friends, if you really want to experience everything that God desires for you and your growth, for us as a church, we come to a place where we are just absolutely fine that knowing the foundation of the truth given in his word, why that's our life bread we are always feeding and feasting upon it. And for me, since I've become a Christian, there have been a lot of different times where I've just had this overwhelming sense, like this is why God has given us this book. I recall one time when I was, uh, we were on vacation in, at the Cannon Beach in Oregon, and I had like a little pocket Bible with me, and I was just, just praying on the beach, just kind of one of those times where you can just be away from it all. And just as I was praying, just having this profound understanding. God has given us this word, not only for my growth and development, but for the growth and the life of the church. These are letters for life, letters from God. You see, in Christ, God has given us all that we need to become all that he desires. He's given us the foundation of truth. But notice also, just even in verse 1, He's also given us the community of faith. So it says Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints, that word has the idea of being set apart, set apart to Christ who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, to be a saint means to be chosen by God, brought into relationship with him, set apart to God and his purposes. And I know there's a lot of confusion out there on saints. Know this, every true Christian is a saint, and every saint is a true Christian, okay? It's not like, well, you got to do two miracles and be dead for 200 years and all that sort of man-made stuff. No, no, no. The Bible is very clear. Your faith is in Christ. You are a saint. In fact, you see that right here. He's writing to the saint's who are at Ephesus. You see, God has given us a new nature, a new set of loyalties, a new agenda, and a new eternity. We are his. And he refers to them as faithful in Christ Jesus. That means that not only are we trusting in Jesus Christ, we have a faith in Christ that has brought about salvation, brought about a whole new identity, a whole new purpose but it also speaks of how we live. We are faithful to Christ. That's who he's writing to, the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And when you see that phrase, in Christ Jesus, if you, if you miss the in Christ Jesus, you're really missing the whole heart of what it means to be a Christian. To be in Christ Jesus, like in the, even in the book of Ephesians, It occurs, whether he says like in him or in the Lord or in Christ, it actually occurs 39 times like that. And it tells us that it is our relationship with Christ that brings about life, vibrancy. We are joined to Christ in one spiritual body. And yes, it is an individual, personal belief, but when you believe in Christ, it brings you into unity with every other true believer, we are in Christ. And it's not like, well, I'm in Christ, and that's why I've got salvation, and then I just need to kind of figure it out on my own for the rest of this. We, are, we flourish in this relationship with Christ. That is why we're always going back to him. And it's this vital union with Christ and with his people that brings about faithfulness to him. And it's kind of like a scuba diver, I don't know if you've ever done scuba diving, but you can actually exist in an alien environment, okay? So if you try scuba diving apart from, like, the mask and the oxygen tank, you will not be scuba diving too long, right? At some point, you're going to need to take a breath, and uh, if you don't have that apparatus, guess what? You're going to be taking a lot of water. You may not be with us next Sunday if you try that, okay? But on the other hand, if you have the equipment, all of a sudden, you can do quite well in a very foreign environment. You see, God has given us everything we need in Christ. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He has given us relationship with him. And even in a world that is counter to Christ, we can really thrive as long as we're drawing upon the resources that are found in Christ Jesus. That's why he writes to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, he's writing to those who are in Ephesus. Let me give you a little bit of background about the city of Ephesus, because in really to understand the power of what he's writing in this book, you need to have at least some understanding of the city of Ephesus. Apart from the city of Rome, Paul visited no more important city than the city of Ephesus. It was the... uh, capital of the Roman province of Asia, where modern-day Turkey is uh, today. It was an amazing city in terms of its development. It was a commercial center. It had two major routes that actually found joined together. It was right next to the Aegean Sea, and so you had all these ships bringing all this merchandise and all the commerce. It all flowed through there. It was also a place where there was a great political environment. The governor lived there. But it was also a place which was like a massive religious center. And you need to understand a little bit about this. So the first time the Apostle Paul makes entrance into Ephesus, you find it uh, toward the end of his second missionary journey. And as was his practice, so as a trained Jew, there weren't like churches, right? He shows up in Ephesus. What there are, well, there was a large uh, colony of Jews. They had synagogues. He shows up at a synagogue, that is the meeting place of the Jews, as in it, uh, an invited guest. If you had some sort of esteemed scholar, after the scriptures were read, uh, a scholar or a rabbi like, like Paul would have been understood as, would be given an opportunity to speak and explain the scriptures. And so he does. But he points them to Christ. And he points them to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of the Messiah, that he indeed is the living Son of God. He is the promised one in the line of David. And I want you to know, you make a statement like that, it's going to create an uproar. Some of the folks are like, we want to know more about this. Many of them are like, absolutely not. But Paul was all the way, he was finishing his journey. He needed to get back to Antioch. But what he did He left one of the most amazing couples you'll find in the New Testament. A couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. He had met them in Corinth. They had done work together. They were both tent makers. But Paul had invested much in their development. And so he left this couple in Ephesus. We don't know if there were just some brand new believers or just folks that were interested. But he leaves this couple to basically take this fledgling work and to continue to teach And to share the gospel. And he goes back to Antioch. He makes his report. After his furlough, uh, then on his third missionary journey, after he made his way through Galatia, he comes to Ephesus. And it's a major feature in the book of Acts. And I encourage you to read this. Acts chapters 19 and 20 give you great insight into this kind of ministry that he had. And it it was challenging. It had a lot of conflict significant difficulties. Let me give you just a few of the highlights of this trip that you find like in Acts chapter 19. He no sooner actually steps foot into Ephesus, and he actually meets some folks, some guys that had been baptized by John the Baptist, but had never heard of Jesus. So he presents the gospel to them, and they believe. They believe in Christ. And then, as was his pattern, he went back to the synagogue. And for three months he presents that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And I want you to know, people are coming to Christ, they are understanding, and it's like you either trust that Jesus is the Messiah or you reject him. There's no middle ground. This lasts for three months. But after that time is over, he then sets up uh, basically a school. It's actually called the school of, uh, at the School of Tyrannus where you had Jews and Gentiles who started coming from out the the whole area to actually study under the Apostle Paul as he taught them the scriptures. All they had at this point is the Old Testament, but he showed how these Old Testament prophecies, all these pictures, all these patterns, the giving of the law showed our sinfulness, and how this all points to Christ, Jesus, the Savior. And he does this for two years and it had a rather significant effect. Some of the things that actually took place, uh, he performed extraordinary miracles like the healing of the sick, casting out demons. So you have in this pagan culture, and I'm going to tell you how pagan it is, these, you have folks that were very involved in magic and witchcraft. This, this presenting of the gospel fueled such life change where people were actually believing in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and for life in him that on one occasion, you can read about it in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20, they brought all of their books of magic calculated to be like in the millions of dollars worth. I mean, we're talking a lot of just occult literature and they burned it. They're like, we want nothing to do with this. And furthermore, this teaching that took place in the school of Tyrannus as Paul is daily meeting with all these people that are coming to learn, it had such an effect that his preaching actually affected the whole religious environment in Ephesus. Now, let me help you understand when I say religious environment. They had, it's estimated in Ephesus, there were about 50 different gods or goddesses that were worshipped in Ephesus. But by far there was one that was absolutely preeminent, and it was the goddess Artemis. In fact, they had created a temple that was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world to this goddess Artemis, or her Latin name, as the Romans referred to her as Diana. So let me help you understand, who is, who is this Artemis? So what happened is about... Uh, when, the, when the Greeks took over this area, they actually had this uh, Asian goddess. She's, she was kind of like the earth mother. We refer to her today as Mother Earth. If you're thinking like, wow, that's just kind of like a new deal that came around. No, 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 no. This has been around for thousands of years, this idea of Mother Earth. She was this Mother Earth goddess. And so what the Greeks did is like, we're going to adopt this, and we're going to call her Artemis. They started building all these shrines, but that really wasn't enough. We need something more. So in 600 B.C., they created a temple. That temple eventually was destroyed in 356 B.C., but they were so committed to this goddess Artemis, she had such control over them, they built a more magnificent temple, and that is is this rebuilt temple that takes place. It's finished about 250 B.C., it is massive, and it is commanding and they had found a meteorite, and they had fashioned it into this image of Artemis Now, to help you understand what this how powerful this goddess was, they had a whole month just dedicated to her. They even had the equivalent of the Olympic Games, the Artemisia that were actually took place in her name, and uh, the, the worship of Artemis, like so much of the pagan religions, was like the vilest behavior of humanity was put in display in their worship. And maybe you, you're just not super familiar with this, but you read like even the Old Testament. You actually study world history. You find out like, whoa, worship of these gods? All sorts of sexual depravity and immorality homosexuality men and women changing out roles even this greek god artemis they like turned her into this multi-breasted just kind of like figurine they made all sorts of idols that were presented everywhere and the worship of this god like many of the gods basically when you have a man made religion you just kind of take the the worst of humanity and you start worshipping it and like if you just look at like greek mythology and just all that takes place That's exactly what takes place with Artemis. She is worshipped with thousands of temple prostitutes, eunuchs, singers, dancers, priests, and and priestesses. There's all sorts of idols that are made in her image. This meteorite, in fact, the one that's referred to as coming down from heaven. And furthermore, at this massive temple, you have one of the largest art collections in the Roman Empire. And furthermore... This is also a bank. And you're like, whoa, why would you have a bank there? Because people think like, well, hey, you don't want to steal money from like a temple because what if these gods or goddesses come after you? And so this became a place where like various kings would come and actually take loans. It also served as an asylum for criminals. Get this, within a quarter mile all around this massive temple, if you were a criminal, it didn't matter what you had done, as long as you stayed within a quarter mile of the temple with all these prostitutes and every sort of imaginable evil taking place, oftentimes I'm just right out there in broad daylight, guess what? You couldn't be apprehended for whatever you did. So let me tell you, this was not the place you'd take your family for vacation. It was wicked, out of control, and I want you to know it's very alluring. When you when you match religion with sex, I tell you what, it just captures people. And that's exactly what happened. There was all these wicked folks running around doing really bad things. Let me give you a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. 5th century BC. Listen, This is what he referred to Ephesus as. Quote, the darkness of vileness. The morals were lower than animals and the inhabitants of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned. So when the Apostle Paul comes in, don't get this idea that this is like a nice little Nantucket village, all cute, and people just can't wait for you to hear about, Je- to hear about Jesus. Uh, uh, uh. We're talking wild, wicked, out of control, moral tailspin. It is very much kind of what's what happening in our country. And Christianity, true biblical gospel preaching Christianity, it thrived. God brought people to himself. And this was an amazing uh, an event where when the gospel goes forth. So powerful was the gospel that it eventually led to a riot. And you can read about it in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, there were so many people that were realizing, like, hey, these little metal idol things that you're selling us, this is a bunch of junk. And it was affecting the silversmiths. And you can read about the riot. And that riot eventually led to the end of Paul's two-year ministry. He was forced to leave. But on, after his, he continued on his journey. When he was coming back, he, he met the elders of Ephesus in a nearby city called Miletus. And you can read about what he communicated. I, I really encourage you today: take a look at Acts chapter twenty and read about this meeting. But I'll give you just one highlight: Acts chapter twenty verses seventeen, uh, Acts chapter twenty verse twenty-eight. Paul had these guys and he said, listen to this. You be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, listen to this, which he purchased with his own blood. That's who a Christian is. You've been purchased by God through the death of Christ. His perfect life was sacrificed so that you can have forgiveness of sins. Purchased by the blood of His own blood. And he says this. Listen up. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Do you see the love, the passion, the courage, the faith? And he says, I want you to know something. Savage wolves, false teachers. Let me show you. This, this is how they come in. They look really innocent. They are, they, they are wolves, but they're dressed up in sheep's clothing. They're going to come off as winsome, kind, perhaps scholars, uh, they're, they're going to present themselves as a, an authority, and they're going to draw away people from the truth so that they can create great division. He refers to them, not, well, just a different take on Christianity. That's how it's referred to today. Well, this is just, these are different versions. He says, savage wolves, and they're literally going to shred things apart. You need to beware that is why when he eventually goes back and when he's imprisoned he writes this letter so that the church wouldn't be shredded by false teachers so that they would know how to live and how to stand and the only way that that really happens going back to this introduction you got to be in the community of faith notice who he's writing to the saints all of them not just an individual all of them who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You see we need the community of faith to know God fully, to grow in Christ, to develop and to demonstrate and show who God is. That's not just done on an individual basis, American, that is done collectively as a whole as a church and that's why he's writing. You see we do not develop well in isolation. Did you know that? We don't. We need each other so we see the full expression of God. We know the fullness of Christ. We can be there for one another. You can't do the one another's if you're living in isolation, can you? And that's why he's writing to the saints who are at Ephesus. That's why we so greatly value being together, connected together. And finally, as we're seeing in Christ, God has given us all that we need to become all that he desires. We see that he's given us the foundation of truth. The community of faith, but he's also given us the power of his presence. Take a look at verse 2. And he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is so much to what he just said there grace and peace. Grace is unmerited favor, this is the unearned spiritual strength. And peace. Peace is the confidence in Christ that comes and brings calmness to our hearts. You know, life is challenging and it is difficult. There are, there are problems. We need strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Let me tell you where it's found. It's not found in your circumstances. It is found in this relationship with Christ. And he gives us what we need. And that's why he's writing here. I tell you what, grace and peace. That is what keeps me going. It can't be circumstances. Things don't always work out the way I'd like them. Life is challenging. There's a lot of unknowns, certain uncertainties, grace and peace. And notice who, where it comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to flourish? Then you want to find regular times to just be in fellowship with God, to enjoy his grace. And his peace friends that 's where life is found. You see in Christ, God has given us all that we need to become all that He desires, and so let me just tell you this book will literally transform your life individually and our church. let me give you just a simple outline of it. It is the story of God and the lives of His people. Chapters one through three talk about the wonders of the grace of Christ, the glories of the gospel, how true reconciliation between races and different backgrounds all take place in Christ. Chapters four through 6-9, talk about the way we walk in Christ. And then it ends with the warfare we face in Christ, chapter 6, verses 10 through the end. Because we are going to face hostility, but we don't do it alone. We do it in His strength. And really, the message of the letter of Ephesians is the mission of Fellowship Bible Church. To glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ. Loving God. Investing in others, following his word, engaging our world. Remember how we started talking about the the Green Bay Packers? Well, you probably know that they ended up turning it around pretty significantly. In fact, in the 1960s, why the Green Bay Packers were the most dominant team in the NFL. In fact, they won the very first two Super Bowls. And Lee Iacocca once asked the legendary football coach, Vince Lombardi, what it took to make a winning team. And this is what Lombardi said. There are a lot of coaches with good ball clubs who know the fundamentals and have plenty of discipline but still don't win the game. Then you come to the third ingredient. If you're going to play together as a team, you've got to care for one another. You've got to love each other. Each player has to be thinking about the next guy, saying to himself, you know, if I don't block that man, Paul is going to get his legs broken. I have to do my job well in order that he can do his. The difference between mediocrity and greatness is the feeling these guys have for each other. Friends, that's what you're going to find in a healthy church. A love for Christ that gets translated for a love for one another and a love for this lost world so that they will know the goodness of Jesus. In Christ, God has given us all that we need to be all that he desires. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that just even opening up this book, just looking at the introduction, while we see the magnificence of your spirit-inspired text, you've given us the truth, the foundation. You've given us relationship, community, the community of faith. And you have given us the power of your presence. Lord, if there is someone here today who's never truly trusted you, would they just pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin. Today, I trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins to be the Lord of my life. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, God, help us to walk in your ways, in your joy, to represent you well in this generation, in our community, in our families. Living in your grace, with your peace, with your love for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Grant. Well, what a way to kick off. True church. I hope you guys are encouraged. You know, it's easy to say, Oh, this is the worst it's ever been. I think Grant just just uncovered what, what Solomon said. There's nothing new under the sun. There's been depravity for a very long time. Not to excuse it but to actually give us hope because we are the true church. I love that tagline, that the story of God and the lives of his people. So that means he has a story for you. If you're a follower and a believer in Christ, you've got a story. What is your story going to look like? Even, even just taking next steps of community and fellowship and growing in strength and grace this week, there were several challenges that we could take just from this text today. One, Grant suggested that we read Ephesians multiple times. Read it multiple times. Take a chapter a day. Take... Take multiple chapters, read it throughout the week. As far as getting together this week, we have our adult Sunday school or adult uh, summer Bible study starting up on Wednesday. We have a coffee house Friday night. Just a good time to get together and enjoy each other and also encourage one another. So I love the, the balance of this, of this tagline, that there's God's um, calling on our lives, His story for us, but yet our responsibility. He's given us what we need to honor Him. Let's go do that and have a blessed week. you You're dismissed.